Welcome to the Maximum Theater and Performance Podcast, a roundtable podcast about theater beyond Broadway. Today we have a special report all about Taylor Max, a 24-decade history of popular music. Enjoy the show. I was getting a lot of looks. I mean, I was fine with it. I was like, I like snapped at a couple of strangers. Like, I went to a 24-hour concert. This, this is me. Uh, <laughs> this but, is what that looks like. Yeah, this is what it looks like. <laughs> um, it was... Um, an experience. Oh, mercy Lord. Oh, wonderful. Okay, first we start with introductions. Jack. Hi, I'm Jack Moore. Um, this is going to be a loopy, a slightly loopy podcast. Um, that makes two in a row for you. I know, I know, under different circumstances. Uh, I'm Jack Moore. I am the literary associate at the Joseph Pat Public Theater in New York City. My views are my own. My exhaustion this week is my own as well. Awesome. And Kev, first timer. Hi, I'm Kev Berry. I'm a playwright and performer. My exhaustion is shared with a large community of people that I shared the weekend with. Mm-hmm. Is that all I have to say? Do you work at any theaters? Oh, and I work at uh, Three-Legged Dog in the Financial District. Cool. And I'm Lindsay from Maximu. So the three of us went to Taylor Max, a 24-decade history of popular music at St. Anne's Warehouse. And it was a 24-hour performance. What Taylor Mack did was he looked at the history of the United States from 1776 to 2016, divided it up into decades, and told that history through popular music. Each decade had a different hour and a different theme and a different costume, importantly. This just concluded yesterday at noon, and the three of us attended, and we have gathered here to talk exclusively about our experience. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> let's start <laughs> with the question, how did you prepare for the event? Jack. Uh, well, bef- before I answer that, a, a couple more. We'll get to, I'm sure, more of the sort of rules and context around the performance of this 24-hour concert. You alluded to the different costumes. So a couple of rules that happened. Um, uh, Taylor Max started the performance with an orchestra of 24 musicians. Mm-hmm. And every hour that went by, every decade we went into, um, the band lost a musician, which meant that by the end, the final decade from 11 a.m. to noon, it was just Taylor performing yep. solo. Uh, the other thing is that, yes, each every decade there was a new fabulous costume, and I just I want to say as early as possible that those costumes were designed by Taylor's partner, uh, artistic partner of many, many years, Machine Dazzle, who was, I mean, just unbelievable. We'll talk about how unbelievable it was. How did I prepare was the question, I believe. <laughs> yes, but all of those <laughs> things are good, too. Um, I, you know, I went through a, a number of phases. Uh, it, when it became clear, um, when I had uh, briefly met uh, Kev, we w- ended up going to, uh, uh, being in the audience for a show together uh, a couple weeks ago. Yeah. And uh, I it was like, he was like, oh yeah, yeah, I'm going to be <laughs> going to the show with you and doing the podcast. I said, what are you wearing? And then Kev listed this costume that made my eyes wide. I was like, oh shit, I gotta like, I gotta like dress up and be fabulous and try to pay homage to Machine Dazzle and all these things. I ended up not doing any of that. I wore jeans and sweats and sneakers. Um, I only brought with me two Milky Way bars, which I proceeded to, which were going to be my emergency <laughs> calories. I ate both of them before 8 p.m. Oh, my God. Um, so I fucked up. I also said I was going to bring a toothbrush. I forgot one. I bought one and ended up not using it. Um, <laughs> I, I ate eggs and avocados at 11 a.m. Um, and drank coffee. Where did you get that at? 
I uh, avocados were at home, and then I had an egg sandwich at Starbucks with a giant um, latte. Oh, you're talking about after you left the performance? No, I'm this confused. is this is preparing oh, for it. Yeah, this is your preparation. Because at the time, okay, I was sorry, unclear sorry, about they, they they had told us in an email, um, sort of a preparatory email the day before, like here are the meal times: it's gonna be dinner at 9 p.m. and yep. breakfast at 6 a.m. I was like, okay, so I'm gonna have to like you know carb up and protein up yep, before yep. I go. So I, I did that. Other than that, I just um. I didn't even get a good night's sleep beforehand. I got like six hours of sleep. Um, and then I just, you know, prayed to the theater gods. And that, that's what I did. Okay. How about you, Kev? Um, so, yeah. Um, I basically uh, had been preparing my outfit for a very long... I found out a lot later than most people, I think, that they were going because I, I won a subsidized ticket through the lottery that they had for it. So I found out like three months after tickets went on sale, I think, that uh, I was going which was still ample time to uh, prepare my outfit. So I got my outfit ready. I spent like 11 hours on my shoes and like five hours on my shirt. And um, and I found this fabulous fur vest. I, are we going to discuss what we're wearing later? I think that's... You can, you can discuss it now. Okay, cool. Um, so I, I bought these heels at Century 21. They were the only, the biggest heels in the women's section at Century 21. Um, they were size 11, so they're a little bit big on me, but that's fine. Um, and I painted them over with um, silver acrylic paint and then super glued um, a pound and a half of gems to each uh, shoe. <laughs> a pound and a half per shoe? Yeah. Oh my God, I did not realize they, they weighed that much. They were much. very heavy. Oh my God. They were amazing. Um, they thank were you. Amazing. <laughs> and there was, so it was a combination of super glue and uh, craft Elmer's glue on them because um, I wanted them to kind of disintegrate over the course of the thing. Um, and then I wore black, black skinny jeans. Uh, oh, and there were three and a half uh, inch stiletto heels. Um, and I wore them for 16 hours, um, so I can't feel my feet right now that much. Um, <laughs> and um, I wore black skinny jeans, a mesh T-shirt overlaid with a tank top that I made from a Scruff T-shirt, and Scruff is a gay hookup app. Um, I overlaid that, sewed it together, wore uh, pasties that I made out of bacon print duct tape, uh, heart-shaped sunglasses, um, uh, red lipstick, eye sparkles, hair product, um, and I wore three tubes of super glue that were attaching various gems to parts of my body, mainly my hands and ears. Uh, and then there were some hidden ones, just in case. That, But uh, parts of me fell off over the course of the 24 hours. Uh, on one of Taylor's albums, uh, Judy has a quote where he says... Uh, uh, Parts of me will fall off over the evening, and this is a part of the performance art of it all or something like that. And so I was kind of like paying homage to Taylor by having an outfit that could fall apart as the day went on, as Taylor fell apart, as the community fell apart and brought each other back up. So uh, I kept a lot of the gems. They're going to go in like a little box somewhere in my in my room, I think. I love that you incorporated the metaphor of the show into your outfit that is so thoughtful thank you i didn't mention this when we started but in the 1980s section of the performance which is you know well into the day taylor tells how he came up with the idea which is that he attended an aids walk when he was younger in san francisco and he saw the deterioration of individual bodies and also of the community that that, that the aids crisis inflicted and so Judy's idea for the show is that the performance would last so long that there would be a deterioration both of the performer and of the audience and you incorporated that into your outfit That's beautifully done really lovely 
we, we should probably... Oh, I, have uh, to, I have to finish wait. talking about my preparation. Oh, continue. <laughs> Please. Uh, and then I got... Um, so I, And then I got seven hours and 15 minutes of sleep, which was more sleep than I've gotten in, like, of, until last night in ages. Um, and then I woke up at, like, eight, like, and I was like, all right, it's time to go, it's time to go. And so I uh, put on, like... I live on Long Island, so I came in from the Long Island Railroad, so I had to... I didn't uh, dress up fully to go out into my town. I waited till I got to the train station to put on the full thing. Um, so I put on like sweats over my full outfit, went and got a, uh, a bacon, egg and cheese sandwich and a uh, gigantic iced coffee. Um, and then, uh, and that was breaking my diet because I'm on, on a diet for my show in December. And, um, <laughs> and then, uh, so that was just so good. It was my first time having bread since uh, August. Oh my gosh. Um, and then uh, I got on the train and I was super gluing stuff to my uh, body the entire time. Things were not working at first because I, th- I had to get a, like a layer of super glue on each on my hands so that the super glue could then at- adhere to itself and adhere to the gems mm-hmm. that were attached to my body. And then I uh, people were looking at me. And then uh, I got to Atlantic Terminal, and people were looking at me like, who is she? And then uh, I got on the subway, and there was all these tourists taking pictures of me, which, like, surprisingly made me, like, very uncomfortable. Like, not, not, it's very hard to make me uncomfortable, and that made me very uncomfortable. And then um, I was listening to show tunes on my walk from the subway to St. Anne's, and people were just yelling things at me. I don't know what they were yelling. There was one woman who said, those fucking shoes, those fucking shoes, <laughs> in, a, like, an ambiguous tone. I couldn't tell if she was angry at me for wearing them. Or if she wanted them. Or to tell him um, Dumbo, I would imagine. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then I got there and I was just like super, super amped and alive. <laughs> first thing I saw, I got there, I think before, uh, of the three of us, I think I got there first. And yeah. I got my ticket and was hanging outside. And I just, I hear Jack. And I see me. Coming down. Uh sweaty and fabulous and like you were so amped i you gave me energy because i was sitting there with my coffee like all right am i gonna, how am i gonna do this and your energy was like the first wave of like of like okay i got this kind of thing that was a delightful moment yeah oh i was i was gonna say um before we move on this question we should probably address our usage of the word judy because uh, for those who don't know, uh, Taylor's uh, preferred gender pronoun is Judy with a lowercase j, unless it begins a sentence like he or she. And that comes up, that came up over the course of um, uh, the evening. And uh, we can talk a little bit later if we're going to get into the thick of sort of the content of the show about why that's important. But I'm going to mm-hmm. endeavor to use Judy. I probably will fail uh, and I will slip up. So I just wanted to acknowledge yeah, that. Taylor, but, also, Taylor also accepts uh, masculine pronouns. Okay, that's good to know. But yeah, anyway, so if you hear us saying Judy, there's not a, a third person named Judy involved. It's 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 yeah. it's re- referring to Taylor. Yeah, I'm I'm gonna try and get that right too. After after hearing the story that he told about it yesterday, I was like, okay, especially yeah, it's time to do this right. Okay, so how I prepared for the event, I spent about four months being super anxious and trying <laughs> to find out more information and to be comforted in that idea that it would all be okay there was no comfort forthcoming from anyone involved in the (laughs) production I think we were given very little information I felt like it was just there should have been more information given and then a post from Taylor popped up on my Facebook feed not because I'm connected to him but because people I'm connected were to were liking it and it had all this information that was comforting. 
and it really made me so mad that information was being spread via these like informal channels. If you were friends with Taylor, you were getting one set of information. <laughs> and if you bought a ticket, you just were be given, being given very little information. So then my anxiety was replaced with anger. And once I'm mad about something, I can fucking survive anything. So I went <laughs> quite stress-free to the show. That's wonderful. <laughs> but I brought a backpack full of food so much food god bless you and i was so happy to have it because it was comforting to me to have all that food and it really helped keep me awake like if i was just sort of like constantly noshing on a little something i it helped to keep me awake it also helped some other people maintain themselves during Mm -hmm. the course of the production so Mm -hmm. i felt good about that thank you for the beef jerky you're you're quite welcome yeah you offered me carrots at dinner right after i'd finished eating and i couldn't find you them the rest of the time I don't I think know. I saw you after that. Well, it's interesting. I've talked to a couple of other people who were there saying, oh, I didn't see you. And I, there were people I saw like at one moment at the beginning of the show and then never saw again. And I just think it was such an all-consuming event that you hardly yeah. even appreciated that you were in a room with 600 other people. Yeah, I, it was this, it was an amazing thing. There was like certain people that I kind of I ended up knowing a lot of people in the room, but I didn't know that for the first six hours. There was a few yeah. people that I said, "Oh yeah," and I knew that certain people were going to be there because I follow them on social media or whatever, um, or they're friends of mine. And uh, and but then like there were certain people that I didn't like realize were there or didn't run into until the next morning, until like eight a.m. I, that's when I first saw um, Sarah Lenny, who's the literary manager at Playwrights Horizon. I was like, you've been here this whole time? She was like, yeah. Like, that's incredible that there's that there was that, that didn't happen sooner to me. But I kind of loved it. It was little bits of discovery. Yeah, we were in the World War One era when we were sitting on, decade when we were sitting on stage for that whole time. I was looking out and I was like, wow, this is, this is like a special group of people who are here. And then after we got off stage, I was, I like started seeing all these like actors. So I was like, I like, I've seen you in work. I've seen you in work. I've right. seen you in work. And I was so happy that I was like sharing this experience with them, even though like they might not ever know it. Um, uh, that like, I know who knew who they were. I was just, I just felt, I like felt connected to all these people that whose work I've admired in, in a, like a unique way in, uh, now, which was really, really cool. Yeah. Well, that's a bit of a tangent, but let's discuss it for a second because yeah. I felt the same thing. There were so many people in the room who their own work, I really respect that it felt like quite an honor to be able to share this experience with them, including this, I don't know if this might sound dorky, but Wesley Morris was there from the New York Times who won a Pulitzer Prize at the Boston Globe for his coverage on movies. And I just love him so much and I respect his work so much. And he was live tweeting for the New York Times and it was actually weirdly like the starriest moment I had. Mm. I turned around and I was like, that's Wesley Morris. Yeah. (laughs) And I almost (laughs) went up to him and I was like, control yourself woman. But it was just so interesting. There was a lot of those moments for me. Um, It was mostly people that like I had met before and, but had didn't really know. And I like got to know them over the course of the evening. Um, I was Gabriel Ebert, for example, was very, very, very gracious to me uh, throughout the evening. I'd only met him a couple of times, and but the person I want to make an absolute shout out to right now is Anais Mitchell, who ended up performing with Taylor uh, toward the end. Yeah. Which, which, by the way, and I was the biggest biggest surprises of the day. And that was the crazy. Here's the crazy part from my perspective was that I I had known Anais a little bit because we were in uh, we were at a workshop at Berkeley Rep together for various when she was still working on Hades Town. She's for those who don't know the composer of uh, Hades Town, which was the musical at New York Theater Workshop this season. And we recognized each other like b- before the show even started. And then we kind of like, 
checked in with each other and like she was my like every couple hours check-in buddy and it was wonderful and got to catch up with Aeneas and then at like 11 a.m. the next day I see her um, uh, tuning her guitar in the lobby and I was like you brought your guitar? She was like yeah yeah I'm gonna be performing this folk song and I was like what you mean like in the lobby? And she goes no, 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 with Taylor. <laughs> Two minutes later, she's on stage. And I was completely... And then the, the last person I saw was we were running to get cabs together in the rain. Um, so I sort of began my day and ended my day with Inez Mitchell. So I just want to shout out to Inez Mitchell for being so, so amazing and kind of giving me life throughout. That was incredible. And who gave an amazing performance with Taylor. Awesome. Yeah. Anyone you want to shout out, Kev? No one in particular, but I got to... This is kind of set a little bit of a tangent from the tangent, but like I got to uh, like make eye contact and like hugs from make eye contact with and get hugs from like a ton of strangers over the course of the day, like starting from the very beginning, like strange strangers complimenting my outfit who then would remember me and then like would check in like, how are you doing? And then I'd like people whose names I didn't even get. But like at the end of the day, at the end of the, the full 24 hours, it was just like hugs and like nice spending some time with you and and and. Uh, and like always like hopefully I'll see you around like hopefully our paths cross again in some other unique way because of this like uh, momentous occasion that we got to spend together and that feel it felt like I uh, made connections with like a lot of new people who I will hopefully s- see again yeah yeah I seriously might cry on this podcast. I just yeah, <laughs> I was I was you. crying on the Long Island Railroad this morning. I, I I cried many times during the show, which is not normal for me. I get I can get teary eyed, but actual crying is rare, and I cried many times during yeah. this show. So okay, now let's get into the nuts and bolts of the performance production. I'll give a few names of people who are involved, and then we're each going to talk about what our top three highlights. And we're limiting ourselves to three. Oh I'm God. sure we could all discuss for hours and hours but we're going three each so the people involved conceived written performed and co-directed by taylor mack costume designed by machine dazzle music director and arranger matt ray what an what incredible a, what a person i what know a what, what oh a my god again i'm crying practically okay co-director nigel smith dramaturgy joycelyn clark Scenic design, Mimi Lean. Lighting design, John Torres. So I mean, you we could do a whole podcast on each of those people. I mean, really yeah. could. Well, we we could also spend a whole podcast naming all the people were involved. There are like yeah. two full pages of names, but I think yeah. we're gonna leave it there and start with our highlights. Jack, I don't even. Am I giving all three kind of thing right yeah. now? Um, I I honestly. I, I try to think about this. I mean, it's it's a such a deeply unfair question, Lindsay Barrett. I know, but um, we have to distill how dare it you. down. Um, for me, the highlights were, um, I imagine for all of us, this was a highlight, um, sort of the last t- two or three hours. Yeah. Uh, at a point when everyone was at a, a varying levels of delirium, um, yeah. most of all Taylor, who really it, it should be, it's worth saying, showed no signs of mental or physical t- no. fatigue until literally maybe the last two hours when Judy started to kind of uh, d- just you could you could see in Taylor's eyes that it was it was wearing. 
Okay, so there's just that. Uh, so th- that's one. Is And also, um, I don't think we're just spoiling anything because you're not going to get to see this for a while. But uh, the last hour, there I heard some speculation over the course of, of the day and night of like, oh my God, do you think, he, you think uh, Taylor's going to do some like Adele in like the 2000s, like the 2000s decade? <laughs> and in the last hour was all originals, um, mm-hmm. which actually for me was were the, the most beautiful um, song renderings of the entire mm-hmm. experience. I was blown away. I have never heard a Taylor Mac original. And Taylor's song composing and lyric writing skills are extraordinary extraordinary okay so that's one two um oh my god i it almost feels like a fever dream but at one point during the sort of gilbert and sullivan era taylor addressed the mikado and announced that judy was going to perform of the next hour of music from the mikado talked a little bit about something that's actually been in theater news in the last year which is how horribly offensive that is to japanese people of course it's the operetta that is set in japan that's sort of making commentary on Gilbert Sullivan's own British culture and Taylor sort of mused well, why don't you just make up a culture if you're rather than sort of like if you're trying to make commentary on Britain like why you know use racist language about another real culture to do that so then what happened was the black lights got turned on and the next hour was a performance a sort of truncated performance of the Mikado set on Mars that had uh, so fluorescent, bizarre. bizarre fluorescent makeup, uh, another uh, killer outfit from Machine Dazzle, um, and then audience members played, you know, Yum Yum and some of the other uh, characters <laughs> from the thing. And it was just, and and there was um, use of uh, vocal um, tricks, uh, sort of uh, um, technology that made uh, uh, all of the singers sound like like 1950s like caricatures of aliens kind of mm-hmm. thing. And it was just. I don't think I laughed harder for a whole hour than during that performance. That was so that was a highlight. For me also the high, uh, a, a key highlight that I sort of was waiting all day and night for was the era of the 1980s. It was not only my favorite costume from Machine Dazzle with the mohawk, the purple mohawk and the sort of what I called the plague jacket. It was just like it, it, you you knew the moment that decade was introduced that we were going to talk about the gay and queer communities in America at the time and you knew we were going to talk about AIDS. And I was waiting for that. And it was that was the moment when I I cried uh, because it was to my actually to my eyes it was one of the most profound specific um, heartbreaking um, and memorializing performances that tackled the AIDS crisis and what it meant and who it killed and uh, that I've ever seen on stage. I I don't think I was prepared for that. I knew I was going to be moved by it. I knew that Taylor was going to have something profound to say about the crisis, as I've heard Taylor say before. But I don't think I was ready for it. I was completely gutted by that decade. Um, Well, no way it started. Yeah. With saying goodbye to Machine Dazzle. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Uh, yeah, Machine Dazzle, um, who appeared on stage to change Taylor over the course of the 24 hours, left at that point. And the, 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 yeah, the, the quote that Taylor said was, because we're entering this decade, I feel like we should lose something major yeah. um, because yeah. that's what we're about to talk about. So, yeah, I, if you just showed me that hour um, or so uh, just as a single show, I think it's one of the most profound artistic comments about the AIDS crisis that I've ever seen. Um, so, yeah, those are my three, I guess. Yeah, and those last three, those last three hours I had seen in a um, uh, uh, workshop at Ryder Farm. And there it was like an extremely hot evening, like very humid and sticky. And uh, I didn't cry then, but it was it was just like a like I drove home that night, like just like it was feeling like heartbroken. It was so sad to think about just on its own. And then seeing it in the context of was was uh, just 
like it destroyed me. It, that was one of the times that I broke. Um, mm -hmm. Is that are, are those your three? Yeah, those okay. are those are the three. Um, three of many. <laughs> my, I, I, my my this one's like a half one, so I'm not going to count this one. <laughs> Cheaters. The um, <laughs> yeah, I was already learning how much we rules. break the rules on this podcast. I'm breaking the rules. Um, the my, the very first thing the audience sees on stage is Matt Ray conducting the overture for the thing. Oh. And there are these beautiful, bright white pools of light. And it was, I was, I was, I was like jumping up and down in my seat. I was sitting across from Jack and I was just like jumping up and down in my seat. <laughs> I, was, I was like, this is it. This is when, this is how it's fucking beginning. Like this is epic. And, and then, and then it begins and, 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 um, and Matt Ray, first of all, he got a standing ovation before doing anything, which was crazy. It was so fucking cool. And then Taylor comes out in his in his costume and, and begins. Uh, what does he begin with? He began with Amazing Grace. Yeah. Oh my For god. Oh my god. That was that was incredible. But then my other three moments are um, at 4 a.m. after 16 hours of 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 being together in the room. Taylor's like, "All right, it's fine. I'm gonna do Soliloquy from Carousel," and it was. Like the single greatest performance of any song I have ever, ever seen, and it, it was like I was I like jumped to my feet at the end of like the seven and a half minutes, and it, it was screaming. Every like I, half the audience was on its feet, the other half was sleeping, so they missed it. <laughs> but the half of the audience that was awake for it was just like it was so beautiful. And he was like, "I wish that song traumatized me as a kid," and so the only way for me to the only way for me to uh, own it was to make it like my own, I guess, or something is what Judy said. I misgendered Judy in that. And then, um, sorry. And then uh, the other one was, I don't know the exact name of the song, but when there's the Freedom Ride to Washington, whatever that song was, where it was, uh, Taylor brought these two singers from Detroit in for Act 7, and uh, this is in this uh, 1960s era, and they did this raucous wild freedom ride to washington song that was uh stunning it was it was it was it was, it was incredible um and it got a huge standing ovation and the crowd was going wild and then i think my third one was doing uh was when taylor sang uh the bob dylan song a hard rain's gonna fall oh, God. uh and that that was where i like I, I couldn't stop crying and the, the people around me were like patting me on the back. Like everyone was crying, but like I was sitting there sobbing. Like for some reason it just broke me so hard. And I thought that was really, really, really beautiful. I think that's it. So the good part about going last is that I get to say ditto to all yours. How and dare you. Have, have <laughs> a nine in essence. <laughs> so I think for me, one of the most profound things is the endurance you said this jack but the performance and the the physical and emotional and mental display of strength by taylor was just so tremendous and to me it all congealed in this moment at 7 a.m when taylor finishes singing a song and you hear this sort of booming <laughs> from the lobby area and in marches a high school marching band. Oh, oh yes. And the energy in that room was at a thousand percent. It, on the energy completely shifted. It was so amazing. And that band played and they were awesome. And like every, there was not a person in that room not on their feet. I mean, there was just it was so this moment 
and then Taylor came out and he he was singing and um and then there was this I mean the longest applause the standing ovation out of nowhere and it it wasn't that we were applauding the band they had been fantastic but we had already applauded them but it was the first moment in the entire performance where there was the slightest crack the slightest display of not weakness but just the strength that he needed to summon to overcome to get through the last few decades of this performance and the audience just rallied Mm -hmm. and everyone was on their feet and there was this extended standing ovation and I this I sobbed the hardest in that moment than I did the entire time even when it was over because it felt to me like we were collectively trying to power him Mm -hmm. and like actually power ourselves as well because everyone was hurting at that point. We spent a lot of time sitting on the floor at this event and my back was killing me. And Judy just said, we've got five hours to go. (laughs) (laughs) We are not even at the end. This is going to get worse before it gets better. (laughs) And that moment, I just, everything about that moment was so profound Mm. and wonderful. Mm. Such a community trying to support one another. I, that the, the the marching band followed by that applause followed by Taylor's statements just to me was the the very peak of the entire experience and to me that standing ovation felt like the standing ovation of the thing like I clapped harder there I think than I did at the very end of the show when the dandies were coming out in the band mm-hmm. um, I think that was where like we we gave him we gave Taylor the most appreciation of the the whole event which is even not even enough right. that it deserves because it was just it was such an epic event that I think it, I, I I could still be applauding if, if Taylor was standing Absolutely. in front of me I would right. start clapping if right yeah so I want to mention two other actually very small things <laughs> that I wouldn't put in my sort of like top ten highlights but I just want to acknowledge them because I thought they were so interesting one was the uh, puppetry during the oh. section on the abolitionist movement these puppets were so gorgeous. I have rarely seen puppetry that I found so emotionally affecting. It was a decade that was devoted to the abolitionist movement. Um, and they had these puppets to demonstrate the horrors that this, that enslaved people went through during that time and, and their attempts to, uh, um, to escape slavery. I thought they were really beautiful. I should who they were by shouldn't I were they by Eric Avery I think that's who they were I think that's on the, the last page of credits puppets Eric Avery there you go there you go so those were tremendous yeah and there, there were the puppets that were there were it started the, the the decade started with like a sort of a shadow puppetry sort of movement but then there were these giant three-dimensional puppets that were carried throughout the cavernous St. Anne's warehouse space um, and I thought it was actually really beautiful that Taylor gave the sort of the, at, at the end of each decade, there was uh, what we refer to as transition songs that led you from the decade we were currently in into the next one. And Taylor gave that transitionary moment to Eric Avery and let um, just a, a simple, like little tiny uh, short play with puppets sort of take us into um, the next decade, which I thought was just extraordinarily generous and 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 wonderful for Taylor to recognize the the beauty of of Eric's craft in that moment. I've often thought that 
theater should incorporate the wave into it that you see at sports games. I'm always saying, like, I've never been in a theater where people have done the wave and theaters, artists, I'm giving you this idea for free. Like, incorporate a wave into your show. It would be awesome. But You mean, like, at a ball game. Taylor yeah. did a performance art wave, and I he did it, and I was like, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I loved it i was so happy i thought it was so great um and then the second thing was the female acrobats troupe oh lava they were so that was cool. so weird i loved I'd it i've never seen anything like that before and i totally loved it i was like i want to be in an acrobats troupe that looks uh-huh. that's a that's a direct quote from you i was sitting next to you at dinner and you uh leaned over to me and i said and you said i want to be in the female acrobats troupe hard stop don't we all yeah <laughs> that's awesome that's what's next for Lindsay. Check her out on the road. I don't think I have the core strength, but it would be good for me to try to develop it. Yeah, I was yeah. Saying, not with that attitude. I come would on. come see you in a female acrobat troupe. I would yeah. support that. I, I mean, <laughs> we've learned nothing else <laughs> in the last for this weekend. Okay, tell us about your personal participation in the performance. You two got on stage. <laughs> we tell did. us. We held each other. It was yeah. nice. Oh my god, it was so lovely. Honestly, that would be one of my highlights. But I wanted to leave that story to you two to tell. Should we talk about what we did together first? Yeah, please. Okay. Go ahead. So in um in the World War One decade, Taylor had all of the men in the audience, ages fourteen to forty, come up on stage, um, and be the troops that were at war while Judy sang all these World War One songs. Um, and uh, at one point, w- while Judy was trying to get us to simulate um, the bed situation at, in the trenches, Taylor had all the men pair, all the men who were on stage pair up and uh, basically grind with each other for a little while. Um, but it wasn't, it, it was like a very, it was very comforting. Mm-hmm. It was very comforting to have Jack grinding into me for five minutes while we I'm stood there and swayed. Um, it was like what I needed at that point was like someone to just like hold me for a little bit. Yeah. Um, and it w- for some reason, it was I thought it was so beautiful. <laughs> like all of these men um, just standing. There. I mean, it's it was beautiful to see a group of men doing that because I'm gay. Uh, and uh, it was it was just so nice at that point in the, which was probably at like what like three a.m. That must have been. Yeah, it must have been late, about three a.m. It was late in the night. Yeah, it, it was. It was so. It was so nice to be to be just sitting there and and holding each other um, at that point in the in the the night because it was so exhausting. Yeah, it it was. I have to say, it was um, so much. There there could be like a a small sort of like tracking of my involvement this evening that just involves Kev because I I didn't know you very well no. going into this. We had met once before, as I said, at a show, um, and then the sort of the three of us checked in prior to that, and we checked in throughout the evening, but that was a moment where it was just like, all of a sudden, I was like, I, I was so glad it was you. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Like, yeah. it was one of those things where I would have been fine to, you know, uh, squeeze someone who is more of a stranger to me, <laughs> um, you know, just given the spirit of, of how Taylor performs, but it was, it was really lovely. I will say that just to sort of like context around this, and this is true of the whole evening, you know, there's a lot of talk, you know, when you go to a Taylor or Mac show, uh, you are going to be participating in some way as an audience member. The way that Taylor gets you to participate, especially the audience participation squeamish among us, uh-huh. um, it's so gentle. What it, what it, what Taylor does is allows you, he doesn't, uh, Judy doesn't stand there and say, you do this and you do this and you're, I'm going to confront your 
um, your shyness or whatever by making you do this thing. It's very inviting. And it actually invites you to let your own guard down, which is a much more profound thing, I think. So that was just another moment yeah. like that that I thought was really, really beautiful. Um, uh, other participatory moments. Oh, oh, can you please talk about, or should I talk about Kev's interpretive dance of Walt Whitman? I, we, we, we both can. We both can. <laughs> I want to know what it was like from your perspective, then I'll tell you what I saw. Okay. Oh, wait, before we get to that, I have a picture of you two cuddling. I'll tweet it out. Great. When we post the episode. Um... <laughs> Um, um, well, first, before we get to that, because that was like the big moment, a very big moment for me. Um, but before, before we get to that, in the 19, late 1950s, after white flight to the suburbs, all of the queer people in the audience were invited into a queer parade as we all paraded, because this was the birth of the white queer or something like the birth of the queer person. And right. um, we were invited to parade with the dandies into the city, which was the center section of seating. And so I got pulled up by one of the dandies, holding my shoes, holding my fur vest um, and my purse. My purse was a, a bedazzled pineapple purse. Um, that is an understatement, yes. But yeah, it was a gorgeous purse. Thank you. Um, and pulled up. And the dandy was, she was like, are these the shoes you wore here? <laughs> and I was like, yeah. And she's like, you got to celebrate those. Oh, that's who it was. It was Diana O. So I'm going to I'm gonna celebrate her. That's who I'm going to shout out. Um, and I, she pulled me up and she's like, are these the shoes you wore? So she, she took my purse from me and was like waving it in the air and celebrating the purse while I was waving my shoes in the <laughs> air. Delirious, like completely delirious at, at six in the morning. It was crazy. Um, and it was so that, and so I was. I participated there. I participated in the. Uh, There's the Walt Whitman. Walt Whitman. Oh, and the, yeah. The, the and then I participated. This is the big one. Before you get to that, explain who the dandies are. The dandy minions are uh, Taylor's assistants over the course of the performance. So they kind of helped. They they were partially characters in the show, partially there to keep uh, the audience comfortable, and par- we were partially there to keep them comfortable. Um, they they were kind of the foundation of the audience community that uh, drew us into being with Taylor. And so they were very enthusiastic, and I don't know how they kept their energy up. I do know that they had a, a masseuse in their dressing room yeah. uh, massaging them for when they got tired. And, and I was talking to one of them, and I was like, oh, can I get one? <laughs> <laughs> Masseuses are credited in the playbill. Just Thank God. <laughs> one thing I do want to say about the Denny Minions while we're on the subject is just that these were not sort of a random assembly of people who just wanted to help Taylor out. I was just looking at, at, at various points, they're all on stage participating in various numbers and they're out among us in the audience. There's so many, they're all, I think, mostly composed of uh, individuals who are uh, exceptional performance artists in their own yes. right, Diana yes. O being one of them. I, I caught a few others of people who I've seen do solo shows and do performance art. Um, a lot of them are queer performance artists in New York City. And I thought that was just a lovely, yes. if you're, you know, they almost felt like acolytes of Taylor, yeah. N- not just in terms of like their function of the evening, but also in their own, art- in the sense of their own artistic compass. I thought that was um, this sort of new generation of Taylor Max, which I thought was just a lovely thing. Yes. Anyway, let's talk about Walt Whitman. So in the 1830s, uh, Taylor decided that Judy would structure the hour as a smackdown between Stephen Foster, the traditional father of the American song, and Walt Whitman, who Taylor thinks should have been the father of American song because Walt Whitman called all of his poems songs. So they brought out a boxing ring, and they had... uh, 
they had Chase Brock play st- uh, Stephen Foster and sit in one corner of the ring while Taylor sang Stephen Foster's songs and read or recited Walt Whitman poems, which was very impressive that he could, he memorized, well, I mean, he memorized 246 songs. Uh, were the songs, were the Walt Whitman poems included in the song list? I don't know. I think they must have been. I hope so, been. they must have been. But I found that ex- extremely impressive. And so there was, the SmackDown was structured in four parts. And in the second part, I think it was the second part, Taylor said, all right, we're going to choose two people to go up on stage. And I and this girl behind me were one of them. And round two was called minstrel dance versus interpretive dance. And so Taylor kind of live directed us as Judy performed Stephen Foster minstrel songs. And as he recited these, this Taylor, this Walt Whitman poem. And um, I think it, has to be mentioned that Taylor is like my hero, like artistic hero and like probably my personal hero too. So to be chosen to be live, like live directed by Judy during the uh, show was very, very strange and very, very incredible. It was, it was, uh, if the day was a dream, this was like the height of that part of the height of that dream. And so for, Taylor just told us to interpret the songs like literally for the Stephen Foster songs and then get weird with the uh, <laughs> Walt Whitman stuff. And it, it felt, it was so bizarre. Halfway through, like when I, at one point in like my three minutes on stage, um, I was spinning around in a circle and I was like, I, in my head, I was like, I can't believe it. I can't believe I'm fucking doing this right now. And like, I almost started to cry on stage, but I was having so much fun making a complete fool of myself. Um, it, it, was, it was just like, it's like, it was like an indescribable feeling performing uh, and ultimately simulating sex on stage for 600, over 600 people. Yeah. It was, it was so weird. Is that that's that's not like that's like the best way I can put it. It was so weird. I loved it. From my perspective, I said to someone sitting next to me while that was happening, I hope, I pray, I hope I'm lucky enough to one day be as happy doing anything as Kev Berry is right now <laughs> doing that. I mean, it was but the thing was like it was you're being kind of humble about it. You were amazing. <laughs> like you were performing the you committed so hard to that premise and it was not just because there's a lot of moments uh, over the course of the day and night where people were sort of rather shy and, and not like you know sort of participating you know being good sports like is how I would describe it about the audience participation but there were moments when folks would absolutely dive completely deeply into it to the point where it was like oh this isn't just fun to watch you know a civilian you know doing a doing a, a silly thing that Taylor is asking them to do but to that you actually elevated the premise Taylor's premise in uh in, in that performance, it was so delightful to watch. It was great. And then, oh, and then I, I did a participatory moment, which was, and, and I'll tell you that there's a punchline to the story. Um, okay. <laughs> um, I forgot about this. So um, I, I forget, I even forget which decade this was. Um, but at some point, Taylor asked all of the straight men in the audience uh, between the ages of 20 and 30 to mm-hmm. come up on stage. 
And the first thing was, it was like me, Gabriel Ebert, and like nine other dudes. It was like, I was amazed at how few of us there were. Oh, see, I think everyone else in that audience was surprised how many there yeah. were. I was so surprised. I thought there'd be so many less. I thought there'd be like five. five. Yeah, five. <laughs> yeah, so there's probably like a dozen of us. And so we go up on stage, and I, I was so delirious. I actually forget the context of this. Maybe you guys can help me out. But it was um, basically we then had to um, simulate... Uh, we, it was sort of a con- became a contest. I, I just realized halfway through we had to simulate um, uh, uh, fellatio and a number of other uh, sex acts. Um, so at one point uh, you have all these all of these straight guys on stage, including myself, um, miming sucking a dick and uh-huh. miming fingering an asshole oh, and fondling uh, and fondling testicles. And then, and then at the very end, and I was just like, which was which was delightful. Um, at a wonderful, I have a, uh, to the point where I was explaining this to my roommate, uh, uh, this morning, like my, what my experience was. And my roommate was like, oh, you know, show me pictures. And I said, this is the thing I said out loud over my morning coffee. I was sitting there in my room going, where is the picture of me sucking dick? There's a picture of me <laughs> sucking dick. Where is it? And my, and my roommate kind of leaned in my room being like, what happened to you? Um, it was, it was delightful. And then, uh, Taylor picked the winner of this thing and it was not me. And I was crestfallen. I really tried. I was like, I was a little bit like, I wish I were chosen. It was, but it was also abundantly clear that some of the people on that stage had never had a homosexual experience until that day. (laughs) Well, and then, so then, so then, uh, so then later, I think a couple decades later, here's the punchline, was a couple decades later, um, Taylor made a reference to that um, event, and uh, Judy said, you know, um, and I don't believe any of the, that any of those guys who were on stage a couple decades ago were straight. Lisa McNulty, the artistic director of the Women's Project, came up to me. She was just sort of like milling about near me. I was standing in the back, and she goes, Taylor Mack just basically said to 600 people that Judy doesn't think that you're gay. That is the biggest compliment anybody <laughs> Doesn't ha- think you're straight. What was that? Doesn't think you're straight. Doesn't think you're straight, yeah. That is the biggest compliment anybody in this room has received over the course of the last day. <laughs> I just thought that was, I was like, you know what? After feeling dejected for not being chosen, I was like, you know what? I, I loved that. I, I, I took that I took that to heart. So yeah, that was my, how did it look? I don't know. How really did I do? Goofy. You were oh, great. God. Thank you. It was disturbing. <laughs> I was honored. Um, I was. I was so honored by that. Well, surprising no one, I did not go on stage, and I took great pains to avoid being chosen. Although at one point, Kev and I ended up right next to the stage for the Mars Cotto. I mean, we were like front and center, and the entire time after we sat down, I realized, I was like, I have made a grave error. How did I end up here? But you were living during that decade. You were <laughs> laughing so hard. It was so funny. I don't think I... I, I it was I, so funny. But I heartily participated in the mass participation. Yes. I, we At one point, we all wore a an eye cover. So we were we were blindfolded for about... It wasn't a full hour, but it was, it was it, about... I think it was, I think it was 90 minutes. I think it was a long time. He said 90 minutes. No way yeah. we wore those blindfolds for 90 minutes. It was minutes. a while. It was a long time. And this was, but this was also very early. This was at like the third hour in, so everyone was still yeah. pretty fresh as a daisy at that yeah, point. Yeah, but also, we fed each other grapes yeah. blindfolded, and we moved around. Teased each other with flowers. I was teased with a flower, and then somebody sat on my lap. Yeah, the old the old man who sat on my lap while teasing me with the flower said, "Do you like this flower, little boy? I'll show you another special bloom." <laughs> wow! I basically I, I did not respond. <laughs> Yeah, no, I don't. I don't know I that think there is an answer to that. That that was the that was 
the <laughs> only time over the entire 24 hours where I was truly uncomfortable. Mm. Wow. There were points where I was tired and I didn't want to do it anymore. But that was the only time where I was like, get me out of here. Get me, <laughs> yeah. get me the fuck out of here. No, yeah. Not, not in the spirit of the, of, the, of the task at hand. Did either of you spend time in the mattress lounge? There, just, so just to describe, up in a kind of balcony area, there was this giant inflatable mattress where you could fit about 50 people. And folks were invited to spend an hour up there as they liked. Only rule, no shoes. I spent probably eight minutes total up there because I spent about 15 seconds because I wanted to get a picture. Uh, of the whole the whole thing uh, around seven in the morning, and then I spent about seven minutes and forty five seconds trying not to fall asleep on this incredibly comfortable mattress. Um, but uh, I only went up there to relax for a few minutes because I was I was at the point where I had just taken off my heels and replaced them with socks. Um, so I wanted to be a little bit comfortable for a little bit before I put them back on at like eight a.m. Um, so I was, I was very cool up there. It was like it was it was just really cool. Half the uh, half the people I was up there with were asleep, like dead asleep, and the other half were um, all wide awake and participating as much as you could while um, laying on your back in an incredibly comfortable hmm. community bed. <laughs> you, Jack? No, I didn't. I, I went up there to take a picture, but it was antithetical to my my process of making it through the twenty four hours. I spent some time up there, and I was uh, in the lounge for the conclusion, meaning I was there for the quote-unquote sex party and the launch of the <laughs> giant inflatable penis. Giant uh, uh, inflatable penis uh, emblazoned with the colors and insignia of the Puerto Rican flag, which was I was so delighted cool. by. Yes. Um, which I, came right at Kevin and I. That yeah, was we were standing in the back together, and <laughs> this subway car-sized... <laughs> You could Dick. not inflate it in this apartment. It was so big. Yeah. I was like, I didn't know how they got it up there. Oh, I can oh, tell how you because I was up. a witness. Oh, you were, you were behind the curtain? <laughs> yes. They let you stay there? Do you have to do the bathroom sex party? Or yes. was that just the dandies? I don't know if you could see me, but I was wearing a hat. <laughs> I did not realize that. Yes. How transgressive of you. <laughs> <laughs> I was at the sex party. I was the one wearing a hat. Oh, yes. I remember you. How very naughty. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, obviously, when they had it up there to transport, it was not inflated, and then they inflated it. Oh, yeah. It. Oh, but that makes sense, sure. Yeah. I, I just wanted to know how they... F it was, like, on behind those curtains that they had? No, it was over the top of the mattress. Like, it was on top of us. Oh, oh my God. Yeah. It was huge. And they inflated yeah. it up there? Yes. It Was Was it inflated the whole day? No, no, no. It was... They inflated it once the curtain went it down. Was, yes, the curtain went oh down. My God. They unrolled this entire thing that initially we all thought was like a blanket. And we're all like, oh, the sex party includes a giant blanket. How fun. And then they're like, stop touching that. And then they started to inflate it. And it was like, oh, that's what that is. Because I had seen photos of it from an earlier performance. So... Oh, my God. Yes, very fun. It was so funny. Okay. We have been talking now for 50 minutes. And I did want to... Talk about this. whether we had There's any so much more to say, but yeah. critique, not like a criticism, but like a deeply deconstructed approach to viewing it. And I do have a question, so I'll ask it and we'll see how it goes. With Taylor presenting this all from Judy's perspective, which is that of a queer, white... Rejection of the gender binary indeed doesn't 
won't apply uh, one of the many words we have to describe Judy's position on the gender spectrum told a story that Judy it, Judy's gender is performer. That is the perspective of the show. Mm-hmm. And so you go back to 1776 and you recount the history of many different groups and cultures. And at one point, uh, the Lower East was telling the history of the Lower East Side. Taylor dresses up in an outfit that is what somebody who was deeply religious um, in the Jewish faith would wear mm-hmm. and addresses head on appropriation. But then again, throughout the show, there are various forms of appropriation involving race and gender. And it's easier to analyze it in terms of race because Taylor is white and says so. Harder to do for gender because there's not really a label applied. And so it's hard to know sort of what Judy is appropriating and what Judy comes to by way of owning it as the gender that Judy is. So I guess my question is, do you think issues of appropriation are adequately addressed in the show? Yes. Uh, and I think that on a, uh, a person who doesn't know Taylor's work or just goes into it blind could see it as like, oh, this is another case of a white queer person trying to tell a story that isn't their own um, to tell. But I think because Taylor is telling such a broad variety of stories and has been working on the show for such a long time and has such a diverse team that it seems like they would, they've called him on his, all of the bullshit that Judy can be called on. I think that there are, I think there, there would still be people who are going to be offended. Um, but I think because of the amount of work Judy put into making the show and the amount of research that Judy put into the show and the amount of people that Judy had involved on the show who could have said, hey, not cool, I think that the appropriation Judy did over the show all felt valid and dramaturgically sound. Hmm. To me, it, I, I can see why people would have problems with it but I accepted the appropriation as a part of the discomfort that we'd be feeling over the show because Judy didn't want us to be comfortable for the entire 24 hours. It's impossible. And the only time I really did, for some reason, Taylor said in the 1950s, after white flight had happened, he said all the people of color in the audience would move to the center section and be the city. That was the only thing that that rubbed me the wrong way a little bit. But otherwise, I think... I. I, I got everything. Like I, I saw what he was trying to do by appropriating it. It's not appropriation without purpose, mm-hmm. um, which I think is powerful and hard to do in writing theater uh, performance. Anything to add, Jack? Yeah. Very quickly, just the, the moment of the sort of uh, all the people of color moving to the center section representing the city. I actually, the, my reaction to that was slightly different, which was that it actually, one of the things that it did was it revealed how few people of color were present with us. Mm-hmm. Of those 600 people, a couple dozen. And um, that was the most striking thing to me. And I didn't feel as though, I didn't feel icky about it. What I did feel was that it was revealing about 
Taylor sort of made an offhand comment about how that's sort of St. Anne's like demographic, audience demographic. But I was sitting there going like, there's not a lot of people here from St. Anne's audience demographic. I mean, there there are and there yeah. aren't. I mean, it's like it also to me was like there's actually some more moments of self reflection within this uh, this moment that that Taylor could be like, you know, is that also part of Judy's audience? You know, the the people that um, come to to Judy's work. So there's I, I thought about that in general. What I will say is that. T- Taylor is one of the best performers I've ever seen who dresses appropriation head on. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the reasons why Taylor's successful at it is because Judy understands that history itself is a recorded, one continuous recorded act of appropriation, particularly American history. It's true across the world, but it's particularly true of such the, the youth of our history. Um, so I thought that that was profound, is that you cannot, under, whether it's through a queer lens, whether it's through a white, regardless of what lens you look at American history through, you cannot do it without acknowledging that it is one long story of appropriation. Mm-hmm. So to actually, in the performance of history, which is what this was, this was not just performance art, this is performance history, what this did for me was acknowledge how how in our bone marrow appropriation is uh, of all kinds of gender appropriation uh, and of course the other side of appropriations coin which is discrimination um, if you cannot appropriate uh, a, a culture or a people's um, values more as culture um, perspective then you can destroy it and so but by viewing history through the lens of appropriation I think that two things happen. One, we're able to see history for what it is um, and the lies of it and sort of deconstructing stories that we take as, you know, just like the sort of the cheerful march of history. And that's not what this is. This actually um, takes history and examines it under fluorescent light. The second thing I will say, and this is more about Judy as a performer, is that I am constantly impressed by how Taylor, how self-aware Taylor is about Judy's own privileges and Judy's own perspective, incredibly self-aware, um, to the point where there was a number of, the, some of the moments that stuck out for me were um, in introducing the Mikado on Mars. Taylor addressed uh, the fact that um, a, a way in which a lot of people uh, saw Taylor was in the uh, performance of Lear de Bessonet's uh, version of Brecht's Good Person of Szechuan mm-hmm. a few years back that we did at, at the Public Theater. And Taylor talked a little bit about the process of the idea of playing Shui Ta, who um, is, is Chinese, and the idea of a white performer doing that. And that Taylor expressed some regrets about deciding to do it and the way in which they did it. I mean, ultimately was defensive of it and felt, you know, it's clear that Judy can sleep at night um, with that, but but unpacked a little bit of that. Um, I do think, though, that what Judy said, point, point to me, to me as a cisgender straight white man, I really responded to the effort. I mean, and success is, I think, a debatable thing. I think largely it was successful, but it's certainly debatable. But as a cisgendered straight white man, I was really impacted by the performance of allydom over the course yeah. of 24 hours. Um, because in my life, it's it, that is this primary role to which I aspire is to be an ally, right? And so uh, what I was amazed by was how successful I think Taylor was at doing that. And just beyond success, just the, 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 the messy ways in which one tries to be an ally. That was profound for me, and that was, I think, worth everything, if any of that makes sense. Anyway, that was going through my head. It makes a lot of sense, and I agree with you in the ter- sense that Judy did not undertake 
any of this process lightly. It is an extremely thoughtful, obviously incredibly well-researched performance. And yet I, watching the show as a woman, I feel some complicated responses to it because it presents itself as being extremely enlightened on gender issues and yet in my view is actually dominated by men if you were to examine the numbers of audience volunteer participants for Mm -hmm. example it has to be 10 to 1 men versus women yes yeah that's clear and there are very few moments in the show where women are the focus of it. And so to present it as this non-binary, genderqueer, that's the right term and I'm not sure that it is, uh, show, but then to have it so dominated by storylines and participants who are men, I'm sm- speaking mostly on the audience participation front because Mm. in terms of the band in terms of the dandies there's actually both racial and gender diversity but i i do find the show to assert itself in a way in talking about gender that to me feels very dominant and male dominant and and i just don't know that accepts quite enough accountability towards the female storyline in our history And then the other couple of things that make me a little uncomfortable um, are more to do with race. One is in the section on the Civil War, it focuses on the abolitionist story, which having just come from Underground Railroad (laughs) game, I just think it's, if you were to write a history of the Civil War, no way would that be your focus. Now, if you are the white storyteller, perhaps you are limited in the stories that you can recount. Obviously, for him to stand up there and sing music that, um, uh, you know, a slave spirituals that we would find repellent. So mm-hmm. I think he is limited in his storytelling at that moment. But by virtue of that, we get a reflection on that decade that, um, by hi- by Judy's own admission, was a mostly ineffectual and very small and limited movement of the time. So I think that's something, and and perhaps by saying that aloud, it um, qualifies the segment enough that it's the best that can be done with the decade that is. The other moment where I was a little bit uncomfortable was uh, when he sang the Nina Simone song. When I saw oh, the Mississippi got down, yeah. Yeah. When I saw a production of this um, previously, I saw a three decade segment mm. back during uh, at Nyla, part of Under the Radar Festival. Mm-hmm. And he had Amber Gray seeing Strange Fruit. And that moment having Amber Gray sing that song to me was extremely important to processing the way race was represented in that show. And to omit a song by that artist, sung by a woman of color, to me was, it was very challenging Mm -hmm. to overcome. And I think you can reframe it to say the songs are performed by Taylor in this show. The point is it's a 24-hour performance by Taylor. It is a metaphor for AIDS and the deterioration of the human. So you can't have songs sung 
by other people. And so there is a small bit of appropriation that you know has been discussed in one context, the Jewish religion context, and we have to apply that to the entirety of the performance. All that being said, uh, I still was a little uncomfortable. So anything to add on that? No. Okay, next question. We're, yeah. we're, we've, we've gone on a while, so let's try to wrap up quickly. Yep. Uh, what was the hardest part? I was shocked by how easy is the wrong word, but how how little I struggled in terms of sanity and tiredness. Mm. I was really worried that I was gonna, you know, around you know five a.m. or something, like want to sleep. I didn't sleep. Um, I didn't even. Uh, I the only time I laid down was the last thirty minutes. I just like I was just like, and I did it mostly just because I was like, I'm gonna do this. Um, but the hardest hour for me was seven a.m. That was the 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 hour where I was like I don't know if I'm going to make it Mm. but I had regimented myself in terms of I basically I had this system where it was starting pretty immediately it was alternating hours it was coffee beer coffee beer coffee beer and that worked out really well yeah wow Um, (laughs) that would have put me under until about 5 a.m. and then I stopped but um, I stopped and just drank water (laughs) for the rest of it I wish we could show a picture of Kev's face right now yeah it got me through. I mean, it was one of those things where it didn't. I, I was never too hyped up, and I was never too. And also, the the, the flow of the day I felt was really. You, know, you mentioned the, the the. There was a number of moments. Like I think, like right around the forties was when I was starting to really start to feel tired. And then that ended up being all dance music that decade. Mm-hmm. So everyone was up and dancing, and that felt good. Um, but yeah, seven a.m. was the hardest for me. But other what, than that, I was what time did you start this every hour, every other hour beer m- movement? Uh, I think so. I had coffee at around. 8 p.m. Okay. And then 9 o'clock beer, 10 o'clock coffee, 11 o'clock beer, 12 a.m. coffee. I let myself have, uh, well, I, I came in pretty caffeinated. Uh, and then I, I kept myself very hydrated over the course of, after 6 p.m., I was like, okay, I, sh- I should have been drinking more water mm-hmm. earlier because I was already starting to lose my voice. Um, and so then I just started p- pumping in water pretty consistently. And I let myself have coffee at 6 p.m., uh, and then at uh, 1 a.m., mm-hmm. I let myself have a coffee. And then at 3 a.m., I let myself have a single beer. And that was that was all I drank. I was I, th- I thought I was going to drink a lot more over the course of the day, but uh, I didn't want to. And and then when, when breakfast hour came, they were just giving those free – they had so much free coffee. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I just kept taking them whenever they offered. They kept coming by and being like, did your row get one? And I was like, yeah, but I'll, I, I need another one. And they were like, okay, cool. Um because I drink like a gallon and a half of coffee a day, it feels like. Um, <laughs> and so uh, that was how I kept myself awake. There was a moment in the where there was like a collective delirium of the audience. The pink balloon? Where there's this pink balloon <laughs> that floated down from heaven where <laughs> yeah, it like right. floated behind Taylor's head and the audience was laughing while I think Taylor was telling this sad story. Mm-hmm. And Taylor was like, is something funny happening right now? And, and, and someone screamed out, the pink balloon. And then the follow spot operator just followed this balloon for a very long time as it floated through the space. And the audience was laughing. Like, like it wasn't like cute, funny laughter. It was like, we have been awake for, do we have been doing this for a long time? And mm-hmm. it is funny. And it yeah. was funny. But it was like this weird, weird collective moment of unity in the audience. I think even Taylor joined in a little bit, but he, he was, Judy was trying not to show it. And um, 
where we just watched this balloon for like probably five minutes of the show and we were all just laughing. <laughs> yeah, that was a lovely moment. It was so funny. Um, and the hardest part for me was laying on the floor for that long. Yes, that's the hardest part for me as well was sitting on the very hard floor. I think I was surprised at how easy i don't want to not simple but like i did not have a problem staying awake i have pulled old nighters in the past where i really struggled much more than on this night and i think that was because it was just so damn entertaining there was just something constantly going on to keep your attention but i was in actually quite a bit of like my lower back was really hurting me for several hours i um i was gonna say one of the the ways that i stayed awake and i was that i think i sat down I, I didn't lie down, and I think I sat down for probably a grand total of four of the 24 hours. I was on my feet for most of it. Wow. I walked around a lot, and I stood, and I leaned on things for a long time. And I was like, I, I was sort of amazed at my ability to do that, and then I remembered that I was a bartender for eight years. Mm. And I was like, a lot of those skills came back where you're, uh, you know, standing for sometimes 12-hour yeah. shifts. I was like, so yeah, I, I, I stood and walked around most of it. Yeah, for, for me, I th- well, because we went from laying laying and sitting on the floor about three hours in for a long time, right? Until dinner, at which point we were at these gigantic uh, banquet tables that rolled out from under the stage, which um, were amazing. And then we were back on the floor almost immediately after that, right? We went from dinner to... Yes, that is right. We dinner's did go back, back to, the to the floor. floor. So we were probably on the floor, I want to say for eight or nine hours of it. Is that accurate? I think so. About, I would guess almost half. Okay. I'll say half then. We are on the floor or on the floor or a combination of on the floor and dancing for almost half of the show. And, but that also pointed out the structure of the show to me in that several of those hours where we were on the floor, the songs were very relaxing. So it it almost like put the audience in a trance. Like at, Mm -hmm. um, at one point in like in the 1910s or 1920s i like was like laying on the back laying on my back and like my chin was in like i probably had like a disgusting double chin and and i was like watching watching the show and i was like this is this is a dream this is like the dream sequence of the show where it's like this isn't real but it was like it felt like i was asleep but i was also because of the music i was also watching the show it was just it it felt very cleverly designed that we were on the floor for this, what would be the sleeping part of the day, mm-hmm. and I really uh, appreciated that. And then to be woken up with a marching band was uh, so cool. Yeah. Okay. Final question: How did you recover? Well, I, I haven't really. Um, I this is this sort of like, is this the last moment we're going to talk? Because there is one oh, thing I do yes. want to say about the, sort of the context of the last twenty four hours for me. The, these, this oh, previous yes, twenty four hours. Oh yes, please do. Uh, I alluded to it with Lindsay before we started recording, which is. Um, I've been doing some thinking, and I think this is, if not the greatest, it's one of the greatest theatrical experiences I've ever had in my life, of the thousands of shows that I've seen. Yeah. It it was profound in so many ways that I won't even begin to try to describe. But one of them was the sense of, that Kev alluded to, the, the sense of community in the space was so overwhelming uh, to the point that it was acutely emotional for me. The way that people took care of each other, the way we celebrated each other, the way that we supported Taylor. At the, at the very end of, of the, the show, it felt like we mustered all of our collective energy to prop Taylor up yeah. uh, to get Judy through the last few hours. 
and I was the, the love in that room. It sounds a cliche, but it was it was profound. And I I can be a cynical ass bastard, and I was mm-hmm. so moved by it. So then I go, uh, and and the last thing that I from the event was then I walked out into the rain, tried to get the train. I walked as I mentioned with Anais Mitchell. And the last words that I heard were Anais Mitchell yelling, I love you, Jack, which actually, oh. before she got into a cab, and that, I started to cry, just because that was like, the, I was like, oh, that's the last, now I'm like separating myself from the world of, of this, um, this experience I had. I went home, I ate fried chicken, oh. and then I promptly fell asleep, basically on the fried chicken. I woke up for about six hours of sleep to watch the, the second presidential debate, which as of this recording was last night. And I was... It was, I mean, look, if you probably watched it, it was depressing. But I went into a profound state of depression for the 90 minutes of that debate because I was struck by the day, the, 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 the juxtaposition of the day that I just had in the room with you all and with Taylor um, and the, the joy and the positivity and the reality and the, dis, the, the, the discomfort but the, the embracing of the discomfort of that 24 hours into watching something that I thought that was like what I thought of was like the, sort of the best of us, the best of America, to watch a, a, a political debate that revealed to me the worst of us, and I was struck by that. So that was the moment when I really started digesting the whole twenty-four hour experience was um, watching that debate and being so depressed about the level of rhetoric um, and the level of cynicism and the level of destructive language and the level of uh, misogynistic language and and um, I, and not, not to mention just the overall cynicism and tacticalness of ninety minutes of discussion and it was so and I was like I would so much rather live at St Anne's Warehouse in that world yeah. than I would ever want to live in the room with these two candidates ever um, so. Yeah, and then I, you know, slept some more and then woke up and came here and I'm still pretty groggy. It all feels like a dream. But anyway, yeah. there was something about that. That was the moment when I was like, I realized how special that 24 hours was, was watching that fucked up debate. Yeah. Yeah, it was um, It was the, the, sing- the single greatest day of my life um, as like an, a human and as a, an artist. And the last words I heard were one of the dandies who I danced with like, nine times over the this old man with a gigantic rainbow beard uh i danced with him like, i loved he's him he's fabulous over the over the nine nine uh like nine times i danced with him like just me and him and he was so kind and he gave me a huge hug and a kiss at the end of the the um the performance and he said you're fabulous baby you're fabulous and then like smacked my ass as he, he made, <laughs> as he made me walk away um and like it, it, it was just it was, it was like a day that I, before I had gotten tickets, like my ticket, it was a day that I only dreamed of going to attend. And then when I got the ticket, I was like, this is a dream come true. And then it still feels like a dream that hasn't come true yet because it feels, it feels like it didn't happen even though I know it happened. And it has like altered like my, a lot of the things that I think about theater um, in the past 24 hours that I'm still like working to unpack um, and like what I want to do as a performer and, an, and a writer. Um, it, it's just like, I, 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 it's just like, I want to live up to that day someday. I don't know how or what it's going to take, but I, I it, it was, it was, it was the best, it was the best day of my life. Um, and uh, I recovered 
by taking the walking through the rain uphill to the subway in my broken heels and covered in in my fur and my mesh, looking a lot less attractive than I did going in. Uh, I probably look like a a hooker who had a bad night. And um, there's a there's a quote. <laughs> I uh, look like a hooker who had a bad night and. Uh, uh, like somehow made it to, to the Long Island Railroad without falling asleep. Somehow made it through my whole ride without falling asleep. Limping in my heels, uh, drove home, made uh, uh, a burger, and then sat on my couch, intending to try and stay awake, t- awake till nine, so that I could push through and like not have my s- sleep schedule fucked with. But I. Um, <laughs> I fell asleep for an hour, woke up with a gasp that like shook my neighborhood. I was so surprised uh, that it was still Sunday. And um, then I threw my laundry in and then fell asleep for six hours, woke up, had a bunch of people texting me, checking in to see if I was okay. And uh, I said, yeah, I'm fine. I folded my laundry and then I like laid there on my bed awake like just unable to move because my feet were so fucking sore and i took another shower and then at like midnight i went to sleep and i woke up at 10 this i went to midnight i went to bed at midnight setting my alarms thinking we were doing this at one we started recording this at noon and thinking it was one and then i woke up at 9 a.m and i was like oh my god it's I, i set my alarm for the wrong time i set my alarm for the wrong time so i fixed my alarms and slept for another hour so i've gotten 16 hours of sleep since the 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 event and I, I feel pretty fresh except for my feet and and my ragged voice uh, i feel pretty fresh and pretty recovered and i but not mentally recovered because i still have so much thinking and writing to do through this about this about this thing about this ritual we all experience together and um i just feel like it was like a religious experience and i feel like blessed by dionysus that i got to experience it with you guys and with everyone who was in the room together yeah here here how about you oh i nothing interesting (laughs) (laughs) that's a lie but okay so but i'm so glad you guys did you just come home and go straight to sleep i came home when i was hungry and luckily i had packed a lot of snacks so i just ate my snacks that i'd carried with me all day and then i went to sleep and then i woke up and went to the gym Oh, oh, fuck God, you. I, bless you. Bless you. <laughs> bless you. By fuck you, of course, I mean bless you. Yeah, by, by bless you, of course, I mean I fuck know. you. So. It's the most obnoxious thing I could have done. And then I came home and made dinner and went to bed and woke up at 7 a.m. this morning. Yeah. But that's because I'm an old person officially. <sighs> I can't believe you did that. I know. I can't <laughs> believe you operated a motor vehicle. Yeah, I don't know how I did it. I, I don't know how I did it. Um yeah, and my workout was wearing heels for 16 hours. That's so. a very good workout. 16 hours, and I have two very small blisters. That's it. That's the only sign wow. my feet show that I had Amazing. heels on, except for my newly redefined calves. Yes, I imagine. <laughs> well, thank you guys for joining for this conversation. Uh, it was really me. good to talk about it. Yeah, more, more, more to discuss. Definitely. Thank you so much for joining us for today's episode of the Max Smooth Theater Performance Podcast. If you have questions, comments, or opinions that differ from our own, we'd love to hear them. 
You can find us on Twitter. Maximu is at Maximu, M-A-X-A-M-O-O. Jack is at Jack in Brooklyn, J-A-C-K-I-N-B-R-O-O-K-L-Y-N. Kev's at Kev, gosh darn, K-E-V-G-O-S-H-D-A-R-N. And I'm at Lindsay Behrens, L-I-N-D-S-A-Y-B-A-R-E-N-Z. If you enjoyed today's show, please leave a rating and a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And a reminder, we have merch. You can buy coffee mugs, tote bags, and stickers with your favorite Maximu-isms. You can get to the store via Maximu.com. All proceeds go to helping the podcast improve our sound quality. We're off next week, and we'll be back in two weeks with a report on the latest theater beyond Broadway in New York City. Theatrical Media.